everything we know about the media, marketing, and advertising business is being completely upended thanks to technology and data. We're talking with some of the top industry leaders as they steer their companies through constant change. Welcome to Next in Marketing, presented by AppSquire. Hey guys, this is Mike Shields, and this week on Next in Marketing, I got to talk to Sarah Hofstetter, president of the e-commerce tech company Profitero. We discussed how big marketers are grappling with sudden growth in their e-commerce business thanks to the COVID-19 lockdowns, what advice she'd give to CMOs grappling with the realities of a pandemic, and how to market toilet paper on Amazon. Let's get started. All right. Hi, everybody. My guest today is an old friend in ad industry, veteran, legend, Sarah Hofstetter, someone I've known for a long time, fellow Strong Islander. Hey, Sarah, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us. Strong Islander. I like that. It doesn't, make, that the, many, but... it doesn't make the accent sound so bad. No, we don't, I don't know if our accents are really great for podcasts, but uh, let's see how this goes. <laughs> Jewish girl from Long Island, probably bad. I think it's better than mine at this point. We'll see. But thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. So I've known you for a long time. You, I, I know you most for the, most of your career at 360i, but you've got a big new job. You're president at Profitero. Tell us what that is. I feel like the first thing I have to do always is uh, fix the pronunciation. It's Profitero. Good. That's good. We're off to a great start. So no, it's that. okay. P people say Profitero because we're like a dessert. <laughs> we're delicious. But right. but really, it's uh, it's Profitero. It's more tied to profit. My grandfather used to get Profiteros every Christmas from the bakery, but... That sounds, that also sounds delicious and now I'm hungry, but yeah, Profitero. So, so Profitero. So Profitero is um, enterprise software that helps brands grow profitable sales on third-party e-commerce retailers. So think, you know, Amazon, Walmart, Target, et cetera. So not your D2C, but everything else. So it's a diagnostic measurement and optimization tool. So I want to get into that um, because so, because this is an interesting time for you to be at to join this company company for a number of reasons. So, are are your are there your clients? Your clients are not the e-commerce marketplaces themselves. They're the the vendors, the sellers. Is that correct? Correct. It's the uh, either suppliers, merchants, or as I used to call them in my old days, brands. Yes. But are, are, typically, are they mostly brands who've been well into the e-commerce game for a while, or are they brands that are trying to accelerate things? Um, well, I mean, most of our clients are already interested parties if they've been already investing in e-commerce data and analytics, but it's incumbents, it's insurgents, it's as long as they're selling products across multiple retailers, they will need us. And so let's, let's try and describe for people what the, what they need you for. Cause they, people hear analytics and that means a lot of things. It might put people to sleep. So let me simplify it. Um, why don't we talk about toilet paper? Just because yeah, it's, 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 it's not as timely as it used to be, thankfully. Now we could- But it's been hard to come by. Or, or we could talk about yeast or flour or anything else, disinfectant wipes. Uh, but if there's something that you're looking for that, you, that, that, uh, that you're trying to buy, our, our uh, software will help the manufacturers figure out if you have it, like if it's in stock, if you can find it, so how you're showing up from a placement perspective, how does it look? Like, what does the product content look like? Is the price right? Like, if you set a minimum price and said, I don't want to charge more than $2 for this cookie, are they, are they charging $2 or are they charging a buck Um, How can it be delivered? Do customers like it? On Amazon, we can tell you how you did it from a sales and um, a market share perspective. You know, are you growing share, not just growing sales. 
So prior to working with you guys, I imagine if, if a toilet paper brand is selling on Amazon, they had a certain amount of information, but they they couldn't be as strategic and they had to, it had to be very manual. They didn't have a lot of, like, how, do, how does it change from what they were doing to how they, the advanced level that you bring them? Well, I think, you know, in some cases they were getting the data directly from the vendors that they were working with, and then they'd have to synthesize it all together, but couldn't necessarily compare. Sometimes data is lagging. There's also just the complexity of number of SKUs and number of retailers. So most people sell on more than one retail site, in which case just being able to have that diagnostic tool across multiple retailers is important. Now, this this used to be not that important to manufacturers or brands because e-commerce was such a tiny percentage of overall sales. So it wasn't- We're just happy to have the, the sales coming in and not, go, and not to go crazy and manipulate it too Yeah. Much. I mean, almost like what was the, what's the point of investing in software if it's such a tiny percentage of my sales? Right. Better for me to get the brick and mortar and make some sort of, you know, some sort of best case uh, guess on what my percentage is coming from e-commerce or rely on the omni-channel guys like a Walmart or a Target to give you, you know, further breakdown. But it's got a lot, well, first of all, e-commerce has accelerated in terms of consumer behavior. And secondly, how the consumer buys versus um, gets their product delivered has changed drastically with click and collect and the Instacarts of the world. So any digitally initiated purchase we can track. So that that really changes the game and therefore the analytics become that much more critical to making business decisions. So you hinted at it. This is the obvious thing people are talking about in the last few months with everyone quarantined, the economy in certain, everyone's getting more stuff delivered. They're shopping more on their phones. So I imagine you're seeing that across the board with clients, although I guess it, I guess it really depends on the category, but can you get into what you mean by the different patterns, the, the Instacartification of things? Like what are some of the trends beyond just more e-commerce that you're seeing? Yeah. I mean, I think for the most part, we're looking at things from the product perspective, not from a consumer behavior perspective. So we don't have like consumer data, but we're, we're seeing how things are showing up from the product perspective. So I can't tell you people are spending more time on X platform versus Y platform, but I can tell you, you know, where the kinds of behaviors that we're seeing. So certainly in terms of general behaviors, we're seeing that if you can't find your product on one retailer, you're, you're going to jump somewhere else. So people aren't necessarily loyal. Right. People used to be very loyal either to their particular grocer or they were loyal to their particular retailer. They're less loyal. In the short term, like in March and April, we had seen that people are just more um, willing to pay for convenience you know, because they wanted to protect their health. So they were willing to spend extra for a delivery or, you know, and be more generous, frankly, with their tipping. That's not something we're tracking the tipping component. That's just natural behavior um, of kind people, I suppose. But those are the kinds of things that, that we were seeing. Now that the world is hopefully continuing to start reopening, it's going to be very interesting to see where brand loyalty ends up staying. So let's say you had this toilet paper brand that you always used and that you were loyal to, but you couldn't find it during the pandemic. And so you defaulted to a different toilet paper brand. Are you going to go back to your original or does this change like the whole way you think about customer lifetime value? Does this change the way you think about loyalty? Like I've been using the same brand for 20 years, I, I but now I've, I've sampled elsewhere. I'm, I'm willing to be more promiscuous, I suppose. It's funny that you say that because um, 
we we've gotten groceries delivered for a long time here and we were always doing a uh, peapod but then when things got really desperate my wife's in the up in the middle of the night trying to get you know different times from instacart and trying every other service under the sun because we it was just like about desperation but at the same time we're, we're shopping at amazon like crazy is amazon a different animal with in terms of loyalty because of prime and the membership aspect or not really you know i think in general consumers we're looking at like immediate need for now. So whoever could deliver that would work for them would be great. I mean, I was in a bunch of WhatsApp groups, just again, this is just general behavior. I was in a bunch of WhatsApp groups and everyone was like, Hey, were you able to get a slot? Can I piggyback on your slot? I'll leave food on your porch. I bartered somebody paper towels for toilet paper. <laughs> I mean, like the whole new currency was like a whole other story. And so the fact that Peapod had limited availability. Some people were trying to get Amazon Fresh and they couldn't get Amazon and Amazon Fresh. It was like wherever you could get a slot, you took one. Um, the question is, do people then go back to their original behaviors? Because now you can get a slot on Peapod. You can get a slot on Amazon Fresh because the retailers have caught up. So now that the retailers are getting a heck of a lot better at this, both because of change in demand and slowing down of pantry stocking, where where are those behaviors going to land in terms of retail loyalty and brand loyalty? I guess groceries is probably an extreme example because it was vital and everyone was all of a sudden adopting that behavior. But I, I imagine there were a lot of, I imagine a lot of companies that were all of a sudden had a small e-commerce uh, percentage of the business and now it's up, probably struggled to a degree that just weren't totally ready for all this. Like what kind of things did you guys see from your vantage point? Yeah, I mean, the the people who were our day-to-day -day clients all of a sudden got the headlights thrown right on them, like asking for, you know, tremendous volumes of data, which thankfully we have, um, to, to escalate to the C-suite, to the board of directors, to the head of commercial, so that they could provide the kind of data and insights that was going to help them determine, you know, what do we do from a supply chain perspective, you know, is there anybody, are there any third parties that are price gouging? Like there were a lot of real important questions that were being asked that we were, um, we were being asked to answer on behalf. So the clients who were operating a business that was growing, but not growing like triple digit growing, those are the ones that started, you know, their phones were ringing off the hook and, and, uh, and it's affecting organizational change, right? Like, where do where does e-commerce sit in an organization? Reminds me of like when you and I first met, I don't know, like 15 years ago, I like guess. Where it was the digital guy in the basement thing. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Or whether it was search or social, it was like one of those hot potato um, departments that kind of bounced between, you know, media, PR, IT, like all those different kind of groups and eventually end up getting settled in marketing because it became part of the integrated marketing construct. And so I think e-commerce has been bouncing around as well. It was bouncing within marketing, within shopper, within commercial. And so I, I think that is really starting to, to get a lot more attention. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, like I imagine a bunch of brands are just going to have to invest in a better e-commerce platform and better site and better mobile site, and that, that that'll be step one. But they probably have to restructure where there's where they where where their supplies are sourced from. You know, the Instacarts, the, the grocery guys have to have um, more efficient warehousing. But then I imagine every all, all these organizations are going to have to think about 
do I weave this into my performance marketing group? Do I put all these teams together? Are the silos going to mess up our business down the road? I imagine there's all kinds of conversations happening now. Mostly. Yeah, they're all, I mean, they're, they're fabulous conversations because this is the stuff I geek out on, but like even hearing, you know, where, where should my Amazon media budget come from or my Walmart media, because Walmart media budgets used to come as part of the commercial arrangements and they still do. Um, you know, when, when you sell into Walmart, you, you generally have trade commitments and commercial commitments and all the stuff that goes along with that. Now that e-commerce rolls up into that, where does the media buying within those retail sites go? And it used to be like consumer and shopper were very siloed in terms of behavior. So, so like what the ad agency that's buying all your television search and they have no idea what's going on with the Walmart budget or the Amazon budget. And that's probably not good long-term. Historically, that was the case. We're seeing, we're seeing drastic shifts. And I don't think that there is one right way yet. I think it's highly talent dependent. Like if your agency is really good, if your agency that's buying your TV digital performance programmatic, whatever, is good at buying your e-com media then, or your, uh, or your trade media, it's always good to be able to have a single line of sight wherever that is. It might be that the planning is different from the buying. I mean, like this, this takes me back to all my fun agency side days, but, um, the, but those are the things that brands are grappling with now, where does that budget sit and how does it get allocated? And to a certain degree, it's like also the way search was like search was similar in that there were, there was uh, evergreen budgets. Like you always wanted to be discoverable, but then if there was a brand campaign that was happening over and above, you would surge in your spend. A similar situation would be today. So if you're trying to defend your position on Amazon or Walmart.com, you want to buy sponsored search on those retail sites um, to make sure that you're showing up, but you also you know, can only spend so much. So what does your evergreen budget look like? And what does your surge or seasonal budget look like? I imagine the opinions are pretty mixed. Are there still a lot of big brands in this consumer packaged goods world where just, they really would like to not be in business with Amazon or they don't want to, they just, they just don't know how to approach them, but they, there's awareness there. Is that, is that, are they, are they kind of giving up and capitulating as things change? I don't know if it's a much about capitulating. You want to be where your customers are. <laughs> I mean, ultimately that's, that's what it is. And I think, you know, I think what PepsiCo has done by creating a D to C arm and allowing people to buy that way in addition is a smart move because you kind of need to be everywhere. And the barrier to entry to starting something like that, you know, in, in certain cases can be very low in certain cases can be actually quite complex, but being on Amazon, that's that's where people are shopping. So if you're not discoverable there, what are you doing? Right, but you touched on it. So many brands over the past couple of years have they've had this DTC envy. They want to be in that business, and they feel like Amazon takes that relationship. It becomes an interloper in that relationship, which is the opposite of what they're trying to do. But like you said, consumers' behavior is going to is going to dictate a lot of their thinking. Yeah, people, but but when it comes to, you know, specifically to grocery, so let's just talk about, you know, grocery is different than a lot of other types of products that you might want to buy via DTC. But I mean, personally, I think that when you're buying groceries, you don't want to go to multiple sites. No. When you're buying groceries, you really want to be able to get everything in one place. Ideally, you're, you know, any food, non-food purchase, you probably want to be able to get from one location just like the way you would if you were operating, quote unquote, you know, 
right. in real life. Um, D to C is really good. A, if you, you know, if you're a brand that can't get the distribution or don't want to pay the, for the distribution, D to C is also very good. If you sell things that are bought individually, like if you were selling a Peloton, right. there's, you know, like that, that's somebody that that's a product where you have already gone through the purchase funnel individually. Nobody's saying, Hmm, thinking about getting a smart exercise bike. Let me go see what they have on Amazon. Right. Like they're going to say, I want a Peloton, right? Right. It's a very purpose-driven uh, product search. And then and there's not a lot of shopping around. Before you're in this role, you were at CompScore, but then you had a big chunk of your career is in the agency world. Can you imagine the last few months, what would your old job have been like? I imagine, because you you went through 2008. I mean, no, there's no there's not a lot of good precedences for what's happened the last few months, but can you imagine the kind of calls you, you, you would have been getting from clients and what, you, what kind of advice you'd have to dispense like early on and then versus when things started changing? Yeah. I mean, I think that had I still been on the agency side of it, had I still been, I guess, uh, at 360i, that's the only agency I ever worked at for what it's worth. So like I have an agency career, but really it was just, yeah, you were, you were a rare loyalist in that, in that world <laughs> at one place at one time. Yeah. Well, I can't tell you I loved agency life, but I can tell you I love 360i. Um, I think that if I take lessons probably, and they're not, obviously, like you said, they're not perfect lessons because it's only looking at one of the multiple whammies that we're dealing with right now. But if you're talking about economic hit, one of the things that we did in 2008 is we, we just doubled down. Now you can't double down entirely and you know not, not do furloughs or any of that, those, those other unfortunate necessities. But I'd be on the phone with clients day in and day out trying to help them navigate where consumer direction was going, right? Like if you're in the travel business, it's very hard to say, please don't pull your yeah, dollars, double down, right? Oh, Marriott, that's just keep going. That, that would be really hard conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's a very hard conversation, but let's just say you're, you're in the grocery business. If you're in the grocery business, you may be out of stock right now, but does that mean that you should be invisible? Right. Some would say yes. Some would say, don't advertise something, a product don't you don't have. Don't annoy people. Don't, don't, don't try and draw right. a demand that it can't be fulfilled. Yeah. Or some people would say, you know, oh, why don't you make this, uh, you know, you, you should make a sappy, we care about you video about these unprecedented times or something like that. Like, I don't know. I, I think it was like, how, how can you stand out during a time like this in a way that is both empathetic and realistic? And I think that there were a lot of opportunities to be able to do that. And I think people that get paralyzed by fear end up either hiding under the table or copycatting. Right. And I saw a lot of, I saw a lot of both. Yeah. Cut everything or make a, we're all in this together thing. Exactly. I have to say, I saw, I saw a number of ads that were actually quite good because it was showing, here's how we're actually helping you. Right. Like I thought, I thought actually of, of two actually competitive brands did a pretty good job. Home Depot and Lowe's, I thought did very good jobs, both in terms of being empathetic to their employee base, but also um, just talking about how now you can buy via contactless pickup. The idea of saying, I know you're probably going to want to do home improvements yeah. during this time because you're, you're stuck you're at really home. You're sick of that thing that's broken right now. You gotta, you're going to get on that thing. Yeah, you're staring at that hole on the wall and you're like, damn it, I got to fix this. <laughs> um, so that that's one of those things where it's not just like, hi, in these unprecedented times, we care about you. This was, hi, you're stuck at home 
we can help. And I, and, it, and it doesn't sound like you're capitalizing on pain. It's that you're saying, I, I understand that these are things that you need. So it's very functional advertising, but I actually thought that was quite good. And the fact that the marketing teams were, were thinking like that and able to convince whomever they needed to convince to actually double down an investment there. I thought, I actually thought was pretty damn smart. There's a lot of talk about how this, all these brands that went through this process you're describing where they probably had to rush out messaging and figure out a whole new strategy and media plan that this is going to whet their appetite for, you know, we can go a lot faster. We can make ads maybe a little cheaper and not have to have a million rounds of, of edits and we can optimize our media and everything's going to be accountable like digital. And it's going to change everything. Do you think, do you buy that, that this is going to have a great, this is a great change accelerator or are we going to go back to the old, old ways of working soon after this? Well, I don't know what after this means. Uh, yeah. and I don't think, and I don't think any of us yeah. do. So I think in short, there's no turning back, but are things going to be the way they are now? No. Um, but it still takes us uh, to a point where we're e- really do the things we say we're going to do when we say reimagine everything, right? Like there've been so many times that marketers, advertisers, brands have said, Hey, if I were starting a brand from scratch right now, how would I do it? Right. Or, or, or when, if they're talking efficiency speak, ZBB, zero Your base budget. Right. right. But, but nobody ever really did that. Right. Like it was all, it was all like minor optimizations. Today we get to say, okay, here's the new reality. Here's the stuff we have available to us right now. How are we going to do things differently? And I think that we've seen some things work well. Like we've learned that telecommuting is not a horrible thing. Um, Although I desperately miss human interaction and like whiteboarding stuff together. So I don't think it's a forever, but I think producing live TV shows via Zoom is obviously not right. a sustainable business. No offense to SNL. No, no. So no, worthy effort, but that no no more. We're good. A for effort for sure. But I think um we ha- we have to realize that consumer behavior has changed. And um I think particularly as it relates to e-commerce, one of the things that at this you know, the situation has presented is the fact that more people, it's not just that people are buying more online, it's that more people are buying online. The fact that seniors and immunocompromised people are using Instacart more, not more, ever. You know, people, I was talking to a client of mine, she was like, my mom calls uh, Instacart Instagram and she still doesn't know the difference. (laughs) I'm like, well, I really hope she's trying, she's not trying to order her groceries on Instagram. Yeah, she's going to be a little frustrated. I mean, you can, it's just not, not nearly as great a UX as <laughs> Instacart for shopping. Um, but yeah, think about the expanded demographic that you're getting as a result of that, both in terms of age, but even socioeconomic status. Right. There's just, yeah, that, that pie is going to be bigger. And you would assume even if it regresses a little bit, it's going to be a bigger pie than it was a few months ago. Yes. That's a long way. Uh, that's a short way of answering what I just spent the past three minutes saying. Right. Mm-hmm. You kind of hinted, it's funny, you hinted at Instagram as, as a shopping platform and they've definitely pushed into that. And, and you've seen so many DTC brands build their business on Facebook and Instagram initially. Now every social platform is trying to get into becoming a sh- you know, social shopping platform. And you're seeing that with TikTok a little bit and Snap. 
Do you think that's going to be something that's uh, realistic on all these big platforms? That everyone's going to shop socially and share all the time, or is it really unique to those specific two big guys that, that we mentioned? I think that this goes back to the idea of being where your consumer is and making it easier to buy stuff. So is that going to be the primary way people buy stuff? No. But is it going to be an opportunity for brands to close the loop on shopping faster and better? Absolutely. And I think you know the whole idea of integrating a where to buy component to advertising in general is something that had started taking off, but I feel like guys like Micmac have done an exceptional job of, of bringing that more to brands and making that more mainstream. Um, so integrating that into the platforms, regardless of what the platform is, makes it that much easier. You know, you made me think of this. We don't, I, when I mentioned the big three or four, I, I always feel, I failed to mention Pinterest and I feel like we don't talk about them enough. And you and I have talked about them and it feels like this is a moment for them but they've struggled, I think, whether they're going to be the place you buy everything, look for ideas. What have you seen with your clients and, and Pinterest in terms of e-commerce and where they kind of want to go right now? For the most part, our clients are the ones that are dealing directly with the retailers, not the means to the end. That being said, anecdotally, I'm certainly seeing the... You know, Pinterest has always been one of those like dark horses where you're rooting for them to really realize their exceptional potential because they are such a great discovery platform. But if they could do more to try to figure out how to, how to, how to close that loop and how to close that gap from a shopper perspective, I mean, that would really help. But So they, that, they still have not totally nailed that. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know that much about their yeah, data these days, right. but. Given your history in, in both in the, the agency world and what you're doing now, you know, there's so much going on with with measurement and data, and there's so many challenges and threats to data with regulation and privacy. Because what, what's the biggest challenge you see with your clients or with measurement and data in this industry right now? It's a big, I know that's a big question. Well, that's a good question, though. I mean, there's more data available, and people still don't know how to figure out what which data they need, and you know, they end up with. God, sorry to be cliche, but analysis paralysis. It happens everywhere, and I think. We're seeing a lot of uh, we're seeing a lot of our clients ingesting our data and our insights and then commingling it with other data sources to help triangulate what's happening more holistically. Like we're giving a lot of insight into what's happening across all the different retailers online. But then they're trying to commingle it with supply chain data and brick and mortar data and media dollars and uh, first party data when they have it and try to figure out how that's going to help them get to something that gives them a competitive edge. Some of our clients have really robust data science capabilities in-house. Some are really behind in the end and they're, and they're giving it to somebody else to solve for them. And I think that that could be a problem. At the same time, sometimes it goes so far afield of business decision-making that you just have so much data and it's just like sitting in you know, this data lake and they have it for the sake of being able to check a box and say, hey, we have all this data, but I don't know how much is being used. But th this vision that we kind of got sold on a few years ago that we were going to have the clouds, we're going to come in and we're going to have this like awesome dashboard and you're going to look at it and click a few buttons and move your money around. And that's so far from reality for a lot of brands. Like the master dashboard. 
some, some are better than others. I would say we have some clients that are really high on that maturity curve and we have some that are really curious and it, it really does run the gamut, but some, some are more advanced really. Um, and, and impressively so. Let's shift gears uh, radically here. And uh, I wanted to talk to you. You have a really interesting career origin story. I would say like you, cause I, I remember I, I met you, I think you were PR person, but you started off as a journalist and then you became an agency person. Talk to us about how you got into where you, where you are now. I believe we met at a bar on St. Mark street, like 15, almost 20 years ago, something like that. It was wild. I believe that is, that is correct. And now St. Mark street is the next, uh, outbreaks plot. It seems like. Don't tell me that my, my, my daughter, <laughs> my daughter goes to NYU. Don't say anything. Oh like no, that. she's all messed up. She's fine. Everything's great. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so I my my goal was to, to be a journalist. That was my original career intent, which is I think why I have a tremendous amount of of respect for what journalists do, whether that's within our industry or just in general, especially these these days. But not to get all political. Anyway, my, that was my goal. Um, and then Mama had to pay the bills, and so I sold my soul to the devil and went to the dark side of PR. So had this really I can't imagine. Yeah. I, I'm, <laughs> takes one to know one. So yeah, I had this awesome internship that turned into a very, very entry-level job at uh, the New York Times and uh, sold my soul to the devil to make ends meet and got into PR. I was working uh, for a bunch of years at a voiceover IP startup, uh, leading their PR, figuring out how to do PR by reading a book that I bought in Barnes & Noble on how to do PR. So I wasn't necessarily trained on that. Wow. Yeah, but you know what? Like books are helpful. And uh, I did that for about eight years. And then I, and I added like investor relations and corp comms and things like that into my repertoire. Just kept wanting, wanting your skill set yeah. portfolio. And it was, a, it was a company that had, you know, had gone public, you know, major dot-com uh, flyer and crasher. And uh, so, so yeah, you don't hear about voiceover IP as a big category anymore, but that, but that is, that was probably an awesome time to learn. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, learning about startup culture, I mean, I was one of the earlier employees at the company and helped take it public and do a secondary and get a major investment from like John Malone. I mean, there was, there was some really cool stuff that we had done during that time. Um, and so I learned how to manage things, times during good and bad, which, you know, that's, all the right kinds of lessons you want to learn. And then I was pretty much done doing doing that. I had reached the top of my game, started my own PR consulting firm and took that voiceover IP company. It's called Net2Phone. I took them on as one of my clients and my second client was 360i. And that is how... Um, that's how I got involved with the company, um, took on other clients like Vibrant Media um, and Adobe. And I think wow. that's, that's, that, that brings me to how I met you. So things started going so well. 360 guys probably said, "Hey, you should you should come inside full time." They didn't say come inside full time from because of my fabulous PR skills. Um, it was because I was on 23rd Street. I don't know if I've ever told this story, but I was on 23rd Street walking from the subway to our office on 23rd between 5th and 6th, and or maybe it was 18th Street. Damn it. Now I can't remember. But we were walking from the subway to the office, so somewhere from the west side to the east side, me and, and Brian Wiener, who was the CEO at the time. And we were talking about search engine optimization and how SEO and improving SEO results 
is really just like getting a lot of earned PR. And so if you can increase PR, uh, if, you, if you can get more PR for a client, then in theory, their SEO would improve. And so could I use my PR skills to help with 360i's SEO practice? And that was the germination of our social media practice. Because the, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. The philosophy and the thinking are probably very similar, just totally different tactics, but why couldn't they be applied that differently? Exactly. And so we had this client, it was a uh, home and garden televisions. Uh, they had a TV show about Ed Beckley Jr. And um, it was called Living with Ed. And sure. the show was premiering during a, a low, uh, you know, just a low, low, low visibility. It was like premiering like the Christmas week or something like that. And so if anybody had heard about the show, this was way back in like 2005, 2006, people would say like, hey, I heard about that show. When does it air? There was no like real DVR. So you really needed to know the day, date, time and network. So what would you do? You would Google it because that was a TV guide at the time. Right. And what would happen when you Google living with Ed, you would get results for Cialis and Viagra. And things that do not have anything to do with Ed Begley Jr., to my knowledge. Might be a happy accident, might not. But but, but it wasn't for the show. And so we tested the theory. And so we pitched HGTV on this idea of what we call digital word of mouth or digital PR or what's now called influencer marketing. And said, you know, why don't we try to get press for the show from influencers, otherwise known at the time as bloggers or UGC, and see if they will write about this. And if they do, um, just ask them if they could link back to the site and that would drive more traffic and SEO for the show. And it worked so well that Cialis got moved to page five of the search results. Wow. Um, yeah. And I, and, and I did all the pitching myself. It was like, I, I, I was, I was the official publicist of living with Ed and we had Perez Hilton and HuffPo and a whole bunch of other, um, early, you know, gen one bloggers, uh, writing about us and the proof of concept was there. And obviously it's a great story because of the ED component. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we had our case, we had our first account and our first uh, case study and that, and that was the genesis of our social media capability. And only after we sold through a few campaigns like that, did I join 360i full time. But that's kind of how careers happen, right? You're you're early on something that people don't know a lot about and you master new skills and new territory and then stuff gets built around it over time. Yeah, I don't think people were calling things social media at the time. It was like right after Google bought YouTube, Twitter hadn't existed yet. There was no Instagram, let alone the rest of it. There weren't full-time divisions and agencies dedicated to this just yet. Oh, no, no, no. People thought we were crazy. People were like, you're doing blogger outreach? Like- who talks to bloggers? Like bloggers are like these like creepy right. dudes in their underwear in their mama's basement. Right. That's so lowbrow. Where, where is that going to take you? Yeah. So and it, it, I got to tell you, it, it completely changed the trajectory of my career and of 360i. And so eventually you rise to the, to the ranks there. Around the time that you leave, the industry is coming to a reckoning with female leadership. It's been a struggle it's, it's interesting because I actually started my career in the agency world. I had a lot of female bosses and, and in the media departments, it seemed like, oh, this was going pretty well, but there, but it, it definitely capped off at a certain hierarchy and didn't get past the, um, get into the C-suite. Where, where would you grade things now that you're out a couple of years? Are things improving? Is it still a struggle? 
I mean, you know, at this point, I'm now outside looking in, and I don't think it's changed drastically. I think every time a woman gets hired in leadership, they're like, oh, look, another woman in leadership. And so the fact that you're saying that already says something. Yeah. And the same thing can be true for anyone who's black or brown. And that sucks. And, you know, we're just people. So, you know, hired this very accomplished executive, period. The fact that we have to say, oh, and it's a woman. You know. It stands out so much still, yeah. is, is it? Yeah. Yeah. That being said, I mean, you know, there's definite, there's definitely an effort being made. And, you know, I, if I look at, for example, you know, some of the recent hires that my alma mater, Dentsu, has made, um, you know, Jackie Kelly, Wendy Clark, great executives, happen to be women, great right. executives. Jackie's like one of the best in the world. Right. They, they'd be stars regardless and should be. And it's great. And, and thankfully they're getting their shots. Yep. Very cool. Well, thanks so much for taking so much time out, Sarah. Awesome conversation and uh, appreciate your being here. Thank you, Mike. It's always a pleasure. A big thanks to Sarah Hofstetter, president of Profitero, and of course, my partners at AppsFlyer. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate and leave a review. We have lots more to bring you, so be sure to hit that subscribe button and we'll see you next time for more on what's next in marketing. Thanks for listening.